Well, good morning. And I want to thank you for the kind invitation to come and speak to you again this week, as I did last year. It is a privilege to be here, and I'm thankful that you've come out this morning to hear from God's Word. Will you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. You know, next Sunday, I celebrate 41 years in the ministry. It's a long time. And if you're wondering how somebody that looks so young could have been pastoring that long, it's because I was just a child when I began. Not true. I was 20 years old when we planted the church. I was uh, much too young to do it. And uh, you don't know what you don't know until you do it, but the Lord has, um, has blessed us and kept me there for 41 years. And I thought about this particular passage many times over those years, and I want to share some thoughts with you today. We're going to talk about what it means to be a pastor. Uh, I think Brother Rick is going to come and speak on the pastor, the shepherd, as a feeder. And uh, Brother Logan is going to come, and he's going to speak about the elder, the pastor, as a garter. And it is my task this morning to speak to you about the past pastor as a leader. So let's read our text beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. And may the Lord give his blessing to its preaching today. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and ask for your blessing upon this hour. This is your word. We sit underneath it. We ask that it might pierce our hearts, that it might warm us to love Christ more, to love his flock more, and to lead them more faithfully. I thank you for these men who are pastors in your church under shepherds, and I ask your blessings upon their ministries. I thank you for the ladies that are here, many of them supporting these men, and Lord, bless their families, and help us in this hour to think long and hard about what it means to be a faithful shepherd who leads as a steward the flock that you have given your life for. For it is in the name of Christ that we ask this. Amen. So every true believer has the stamp of Jesus on his life. That means, among other things, suffering now and glory later. Cross, then crown. Narrow, hard road, and then abundant pastures and meadows waiting for all of us. Pastors are no different. 
Peter, in this book, has called all Christians to prepare for persecution. And he now calls church leadership to the front of the line. Pastors are to lead, they are not to follow. They are to get out in front of the troops and suffer as casualties, if necessary, for the good of the church and the glory of Christ. Suffering is a major theme in this book. In chapter 1, he tells the church that they are already going through a time of trials. Here's what he says in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, he anticipates a time when unbelievers will slander them, and he reminds them to keep their conduct honorable. Here's what he says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, read unbelievers, uh, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He knows that some members of this church are slaves, and they are going to be treated unjustly by their masters. And he tells them to remember the example of Christ, who was also treated unjustly, but committed no sin. Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Chapter 3, he reminds them to never repay evil with evil, and again draws our attention to the behavior of Jesus, who also suffered as a just man for just men, unjust men. Look at verse 8. Uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 12 of, uh, verse 13 of chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the Spirit. And then at the very end of chapter 4, in a paragraph that is just in front of our section, Paul, or Peter, pardon me, says the trials should not be a surprise to us. Rather, they ought to be a cause for joy. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There it is, suffering leading to glory, cross leading to crown. Verse 14, if you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then notice verse 17. This is important. For it is time for the judgment. 
In English, we don't have the article. It's there in the Greek. It is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, here's his point. You know this. The Bible teaches that salvation for us has already begun. This new saving age has come with the presence of Christ. You, if you are in Christ, Paul says, are part of the new creation. And so your salvation is already here, but it isn't yet here. We're still waiting for its consummation. It's begun, but it hasn't finished. Paul says the same thing about the resurrection. The resurrection that we're all waiting for has already started by when God raises Jesus from the dead. He is the first fruits of a much larger harvest that is still waiting for him. All of this signals that this brand new age of God's saving work has now begun. But the same is true, Peter says, with the judgment. The judgment, which will be the final climactic moment in which all of the world will be brought before the, the judgment seat of Christ, is still future. But Peter says it's already started. And it started in the church, where suffering is a purifying means by which God is preparing us for that final day. Judgment is already beginning here. And if it's hard, if, it's, if suffering is difficult for us, but has a purifying effect upon us to get us ready for the glory that is going to be revealed when Jesus returns, then what will be the outcome, he says, for the world that is blissfully moving along without any judgment and then have to face that judgment in the future? Now, what does all of this have to do with elders? Because it's immediately after saying all of this that he says in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you. In Greek, the English word elder here is the first word in that sentence. It puts it in an emphatic position. Having said the church is going to go through trials and suffering and difficulties, he then turns and says, Elders, here's what you have to think about in reference to the present suffering and your future glory. Our lives are a series of choices where we choose A instead of B. The most of the time, those choices are inconsequential chocolate ice cream or strawberry ice cream. doesn't really matter which you choose. Sometimes it is a choice between the superior over the inferior, maybe choosing one church as opposed to a different. But often these choices have eternal consequences. Jesus says that discipleship is the choice of embracing the painful over the comfortable, the narrow over the broad, being willing to lose your life now so that you will save your life then. Choices have consequences. If you are willing to suffer now for the sake of Christ, Peter is saying you will gain glory when he returns. 
If you will suffer shame at the hands of earthly rulers, you will be glad when the heavenly king comes. That's true of all believers, but now Peter says it's even true of pastors. And he speaks as one, a fellow elder, who witnessed the sufferings of Christ and now looks forward to sharing in his glory when he comes. So, so what I want to do briefly is to walk our way through this four verses and to think about that. To think about what it means to pastor in a world of suffering, anticipating a world of glory. To make the hard choices today so that we will be rewarded down the road. So I know you, you have seen these stories. Sometime in the past 12 months, a Christian in Great Britain is standing quietly on the side of a road across a street from an abortion clinic. He doesn't have a sign in his hand. He's not yelling anything at people that are walking into the door. He is standing quietly, and he's praying, and he's arrested. There are Christians in Canada who are facing the threat of trial because they dare to stand in a pulpit and proclaim what God has to say about sexual ethics. This last week, a young man, to his credit, is standing on a public sidewalk, and he is preaching the gospel out loud here in this country, and he's arrested. I told you that I've been preaching now for 41 years. I have preached so often on the theme of persecution and suffering from the church, and to be perfectly honest with you, when I preached, I, 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 I always thought I was something of an imposter because my life has been really free of any of that. I have lived a charmed existence. For the most part, my life has gone swimmingly. But really, for the first time, I see on the horizon that passages like this and, and the call that God is making to us who are pastors is more relevant than it ever has been. So how do we do this? How do we pastor now in the light of future glory. Well, I think Peter tells us three things, and here's what I want to examine with you this morning. First of all, in verses 1 and 2a, he's going to tell us to pastor in the light of Christ's sufferings. Then in verse 2b through 3, he's going to tell us to pastor in the light of Christ's example. In other words, be like Jesus. And then finally, in verse 4, he tells us to pastor in the light of Christ appearing. So let's explore these things. Verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You have been promised an incredible inheritance. According to verse 1 and also in verse 4, you are going to partake one day of future glory. This is the goal of our ministries, isn't it? We are not just ministering for the here and now. We are ministering for the day when the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the chief shepherd of the flock, is going to appear before us all. 
This reward is eternal life. It's a crown of unfading glory. We think of crowns as these kind of gold, jewel-encrusted diadems that sit on top of our heads. But in the ancient world, they're more like this. Wreaths that are placed upon somebody that finishes a race. And those wreaths, after a while, begin to fade and they get brittle and the leaves on them go away. Peter is saying, that's not for us. You and I are going to cross the finish line one day if we remain faithful to Christ, and we are going to receive a crown of unfading glory. It will never go away. This is an incredible inheritance. But that inheritance is only ours if we are willing to undergo serious suffering. The pattern of Christ's life is yours. Give up the world's glory to gain an even greater glory then. That means that you've been given an incredible responsibility. I want you to note that there are three words used in this text of our office. There is the word elder. It speaks of a pastor's maturity. I assure you at 20 years of age, I did not qualify to be a pastor. I may have been more knowledgeable than most of the congregation that we started our church with, but I wasn't more mature. You want people that are mature in the faith, elder. The second word is an overseer. The verb is used here. It is a given uh, a response. It speaks of our responsibility that we are to care for the church. And the third word is shepherd, from which we get our English word pastor. And it speaks of the way in which we exercise our responsibility, nurture and care. So a pastor, like you or like me, is someone who is sufficiently mature to exercise oversight of the church in a way that demonstrates the care, love, and protection of a shepherd for his flock. Let me say it again. These three words tell us that a pastor is someone who is sufficiently mature to exercise oversight of the church in a way that demonstrates the care, love, and protection of a shepherd for his flock. You're an elder. This is used frequently in the New Testament of church leaders. The church in Jerusalem had elders. A group of leaders from Ephesus come to Paul to visit, and they are called elders, Acts 20. I think Logan is going to preach on that section in a moment. James encourages someone who is sick to ask the elders of the church to pray for them and anoint their head with oil, James 5.14. The author of Hebrews tells the church to obey their elders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So you have Luke and Peter, Paul, and James all referring to the leadership of the church with this word. Initially, elders were probably not office holders in the sense that we think of them but rather mature men who probably had been leaders within the synagogues, and now that they have converted to Christ, become leaders within the church. But in time, the churches needed more formal oversight. So the office of elder develops alongside the office of deacon. You know that in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul goes to great details to say, here are the qualifications of what an elder is to be. Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in all of the churches that they have founded in their first missionary journey. 
Pastors are to be men who are not novices in the faith, but have experience in teaching the word and are spiritually mature in their lives. Here's what Paul says of them in Titus 1, 7 through 9. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder is not somebody that is a warm body that you can grab and put into the role. They must be somebody that is mature in the faith. Secondly, if you're an elder, you are to be a shepherd. This speaks of the way in which you nurture the church, care for it, feed it, protect it. The Lord has always viewed his people as his sheep. All we like sheep, Isaiah 53 says, have gone astray, and we have wandered, every one of us, to our own ways. And his great complaint against Israel's leadership in the Old Testament, in which he likened them to shepherds, is that they were self-serving and lacked love for his people. This is, this is the greatest indictment that God can make of the leadership of the church. I have entrusted the care of these people to you, and rather than caring for them, you have only cared for yourself. Listen to this indictment from Ezekiel chapter 34. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Now think about what Jesus says. That he is the good shepherd. And if he has a hundred sheep in his fold and one of them goes missing, he leaves the 99 and he goes and pursues them and brings them back. In that same chapter in Ezekiel 34, God promises that one day he would send the great shepherd to care for them. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am Yahweh, I have spoken. So if you're in First Peter, just look back in chapter 2 and verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. This great shepherd has come into this world. He has given his life for his sheep. 
And now he has chosen under-shepherds to steward that flock. And that's the responsibility that you and I have. We are to care for the sheep as Christ did. Given how Jesus restores Peter after his great sin, it's not surprising that Peter uses the term shepherding for church leadership, right? You remember the story, don't you? Peter is sitting warming his hands by the fire as Jesus is inside Herod's palace being tried. He, uh, he's watching in all of this, and somebody speaks up and says, uh, you look familiar. Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter, of course, denies the Lord, and he does it three times. And so the question becomes, what to make of Peter? What's going to happen to Peter? And then you know, after the Lord is raised, he takes Peter aside there on the shore of Galilee, and he begins to visit with him. And wonderfully, he gives Peter, who denied him three times, an opportunity to confess him three times. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. And then what does he tell Peter? Feed my sheep. Care for my lambs. Take care of my flock. Peter, I'm not done with you. I've forgiven you your great sins. Now go and take care of my flock. And Peter takes that word and he says to us, though our pastors, we have the responsibility to shepherd the flock as Jesus has shepherded them. Finally, you're an overseer. It speaks of our responsibility. You have to administer the affairs of the church as stewards. And as Hebrews says, you have to keep watch over the souls of the church members as those, will have, as those who will have to give an account. Hebrews 13, 7. So the day is coming when the one who gave his life for the sheep is going to come and we're going to have to stand before him. And we're going to have to give an account. How much did we pray for them? How much did we visit them? How much did we encourage them, admonish them, exhort them, rebuke them occasionally? Did we go after those that are straying and seek with all of our might to bring them back? They are under our care, but they're not our sheep. They're the Lord's sheep. He's the one who has died for them. And one day, he's going to come and ask us, how well have we led them? And that means suffering. It's no coincidence that in this book about suffering and persecution and trials, that Peter would say, I am a fellow elder and I have witnessed Christ's sufferings and I am one day going to partake in the glory that is going to be revealed and I'm asking you, shepherd the flock in the light of what he has accomplished for them. Number two, pastor in the light of Christ's example. He says in three phrases, this is what you're not supposed to do and this is what you are supposed to do. 
you are to pastor willingly, not under compulsion. The very first qualification of an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, is desire for the office. You have to want it. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. God may draft you, but the church can't. There are people willing but not qualified, and people qualified but not willing. And the Bible says that it must be those who are both willing and qualified to occupy this office. This is not an office for the faint-hearted or for those who easily quit. You are often going to be tired, discouraged. People will misunderstand you and underappreciate your efforts. You will learn things about human nature that can make you a cynic. You will grow weary of saying the same things over and over again, and there will be times that you will wonder if your ministry is bearing any lasting fruit at all. If you really have a pastor's heart, you will often want spiritual maturity for someone more than they want it for themselves. And in times of persecution, you will be on the front lines and will more than likely be the first casualty of the war. You can't do this job the way Christ demands it if you don't have a heart for it. It must be willing. Now, I want to tell you the other side of the story is that there is, of course, great satisfaction and joy and reward for the job. I've had the privilege, because I have been in the same church for such a long time, of baptizing two and three generations of the same family. I've stood in front of a congregation and officiated weddings for parents and then 25 years later for their kids. It's a great thing to do. I'm grateful that the Lord has kept me in one place for a very long time because I've had the privilege of seeing that. But it is full of heartache, difficulties, trials. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. And it's why you don't just grab a warm body and say, Brother, we need somebody in the office. They have to be willing as well as qualified. A willing pastor is one who shepherds as Christ shepherds his people. He says there in verse 2, Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. He's already spoken of Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The Lord willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for his sheep, and now he looks for faithful men who will sacrifice themselves willingly for his people. Here's what he said in Jeremiah 23.4. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they will fear no more, the sheep. They will fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. This is the wonderful task that he has called us to. Secondly, we are to pastor not only willingly, but eagerly, verse 3, not for financial gain. Not, he says, at the end of verse 2, Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Greed is one of our most common sins. 
right? I saw two weeks ago on my Twitter feed, I hope it's not true, but I think it is, that one of these big box mega stores, mega churches, evangelical kind of fluffy, generic versions of evangelicalism, pastor was wearing a shirt, a t-shirt, and somebody checked on the price of the t-shirt, and the t-shirt was $850. I know a lot of you have followed the saga of Hillsong. It is incredible. Recent revelations of pastors spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in personal expense and vacations billed to the tithes and offerings of the members of the church. It is a tragic fact that one of the quickest ways in the West to gain extraordinary wealth is through the building of a megachurch. Peter says, that must not be of us. That we are to pastor eagerly, but our eagerness is not to become wealthy. It is not for financial greed. Third, he says, pastor lovingly. Not as an authoritarian bully. Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter learned this directly from the lips of our Lord, didn't he? The disciples walked with the Lord for three years. Many of the lessons that he taught them just never sank in until after Pentecost. And he has told them over and over again, look, my kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. If you want to be first, you're going to have to be last. If you want to be the most important person, become the least important person. For even the Son of Man, he says, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So the disciples are arguing with one another about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. James and John, of course, have gone to the Lord and said, listen, we, we just have a simple request. One of us would like to sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand. We don't care who's on right and who's left. Just give us those positions, Lord. We wanted to be first in line to ask you that because anybody that snoozes loses. And pushed ahead by their mother, they asked the question. This causes all kinds of consternation among the disciples. They're angry about this. Well, who are these guys think they are to ask for those positions? And Jesus rebukes them all. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. What you should be about is not greater authority so that people can serve you, but rather to use your positions of authority to serve them. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Remember, your congregation has one Lord, and you ain't it. He's the one they belong to. And he has given them to your charge. You are a steward. So love them. Don't abuse them. You exist for their benefit, 
not the other way around. One of the ways that you can detect a true shepherd versus a hireling is to ask that question. Do they exist for the benefit of the church or do they view the church as existing for their benefit? It's one of the great marks of a false teacher in the New Testament that they use their positions not only for greed and the accumulation of great wealth, but also to dictate how the church is going to be functioning. Jude speaks of them in Jude 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. In 1 Peter 2, 3, he says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. One podcast in the last year detailed the rise and fall of one of these large box megachurches, and it was frightening how abusive was the leadership of that church. Pastor as Christ has pastored us. Willingly, eagerly, lovingly. Last, verse 4. Pastor in the light of Christ's return. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the world is arrayed against the church, and there are casualties on every side. But the Lord Jesus is going to come and rescue his flock. He's coming back for us. The flock may be persecuted. The flock may be killed. They might be searched out by hostile governments who are intent on their destruction. But Jesus, our chief shepherd, is coming for us. And he has our inheritance in his hands. You will receive from him this unfading crown of glory. He will come to reward his under-shepherds. Here's the great why for why you should persevere in faithful ministry. The crown of glory is unfading and imperishable. Your inheritance is a share of his glory. Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we have already been given a kind of down payment on this great inheritance. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit has been given to us, and one of the things that he does in our life is to say to us, you are a child of God. He bears witness with our spirits that we are a child of God. And if we are a child of God, that means that we are an heir of God. And that means that we are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. All that belongs to him by virtue of our union with him will also one day belong to us. Provided, he says, that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Martin Luther said there's two kinds of theology. There's a theology of the cross, and there's a theology of the crown. And most of us gravitate to the theology of the crown. We want a good life. We want a successful life. We want a prosperous life. 
We want a life free of worry, free of concern, free of persecution, free of trials. We want to pastor churches that are growing, that are vibrant. But Luther says, the path to glory is always the path of the cross. And in order to get glory, you have to embrace suffering, persecution, difficulties, hardships, trials. My brothers, pastor in the light of Christ's sufferings and his example. And may God grant you that one day when he returns, he will be able to look at you and say to you, well done, good, faithful servant. Our Father, grant now that we may take these words to our heart, embrace them, and that we will shepherd our churches as you would have us to do. Should times turn very difficult and dark in the future, and only you know, Lord, whether they will, may these men and all of us who have this great responsibility lead from the front and not hide in the back. Be examples to our congregations. Lord, honor the work of these men and bless their flocks. Reform them according to your word. For it is in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Chief Shepherd, that we pray this. Amen.